0: All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study in First Kings. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, we left off uh, in chapter 15, right around verse 27. That's where we'll pick up. It's always a little perilous to jump back into this text because if you're not paying attention, it's easy to get lost. We are um, looking at the divided kingdom, and of course, we've taken opportunity all the way back in chapter 14 to look at Judah, the kingdom of the south, and of course um, Benjamin absorbed into Judah, so those two tribes. And we've seen Jeroboam, let's see if I can just grab a few of the names here, Joab- Jeroboam, Nadab, Abijam, Asa, Asa who is the one good king of those, uh, all listed as the kings of the south, and that takes us into um, verse, uh, excuse me, um, chapter 15, verse 25 and following, which are the kings in Israel. So running parallel to that list I just gave, you have uh, Nadab, Basha, and then as we're going to see, Elah, Zimri, Omri, etc. So those will be the kings in the north, the northern ten tribes. So where we pick up then at verse 27 of chapter 15, we are in the north, Uh, Of course, you know the north is. um, I think I already messed that up. In fact, Rehoboam is in the south. Rehoboam. Sure enough, Rehoboam, Abijam, Asa, those guys are in the south. North is Jeroboam, Nadab. (laughs) Already, I messed it up. Would you look at that? Well, so Basha in the north. Um, the son of Ahijah, this is verse 27 of chapter 15, of the house of Issachar conspired against him, uh, namely against Nadab. And Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, for Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibethon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa king of Judah and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, he killed the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned and that he made Israel to sin, and because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. All right, so Basha represents a a dynasty change. Jeroboam, Nadab, that household uh, falls because of their wickedness. Basha, even though he's wicked himself, is the tool of God to punish the house of Jeroboam. And that's what you're going to see kind of repeated and a repeating theme is that God uses the wicked to punish the wicked and then uses wicked to punish those wicked and so on. Um, I don't know what else to point out here. Basha, of course, means Baal hears. And so even in his name, you kind of have the intrusion of uh, Baal worship. Verse 33, and the oh yeah, and then of course uh, Basha and Asa are going, to, are going to be after each other. I mean, you have civil war in the kingdom, which is a terrible thing in and of itself, but Asa is a good king and Basha is a bad king, so thus war between them all their days. Verse 33, in the third year of Asa king of Judah, Basha the son of Ahijah began to reign over all Israel at Tirzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Yeah, so meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And for the very things that God used Basha to punish the house of Jeroboam, now Basha himself is doing. So it's a bit of a moral quagmire and mess, to say the least. All right, chapter 16, verse 1, And the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying, Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will utterly sweep away Baasha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Um, yeah, so again, just once more on this, on this language of sin here. This is really idolatry and apostasy. That's the nature of this sin. Verse 4. Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the field... The birds of the heavens shall eat so we've heard this curse before over the house of uh, yeah you don't want this you don't want this curse over you because god god sees it through so jeroboam same curse was over him and his house and again this just means like you're not going to have you're not going to have peaceful deaths at the end of a long and satisfying life where everyone gets Honored in burial, etc. It's quite the opposite of that. Verse 5, now the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Basha slept with his fathers and was buried at Tirzah, and Elah his son reigned in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha and his house, both because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, in being like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. All right, so then on to the reign of uh, Elah. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, again, Asa's the good king down in Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, began to reign over Israel in Tirzah, and he reigned two years. That was it, so a very short reign for Elah. But his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him, When he was at Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arzah, who was over the household in Tirzah, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. Two years, the king's doing what his dad did, gets super drunk, military coup, gets struck down, so ends Elah. Then Zimri takes over. Okay, verse 11. When he began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or his friends. So yet another dynasty change here. And the curse that was visited upon Jeroboam is now visited upon Basha, just as the Lord had said. Which I suppose in some way, shape, or form we can see that even though God is permitting this great evil and the human rulers are doing terrible things, God is still fully in charge and fully in command and is meting out punishment and curse as he sees fit. And No one's going to stop him. So he is still ruling and reigning despite the appearance. Maybe that's helpful for us to remember, too, um, when we consider our, our politics here in this nation and the reigning of, of wicked people and, and wicked rulers uh, who put forward all manner of abomination, uh, child sacrifice, sexual immorality, false worship, destruction of the family, destruction of the worship of the one true God, etc. Uh, we, we, despite seeing all these things, remember that God is quite in control. All right, so yeah, again, verse 12, Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Basha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet, for all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? All right.
1: Um, one, one question. You wouldn't want that job of the prophet, Jehu. I mean, how, how do you do that? How do you come to somebody and tell them, hey, you're a real creep"?
0: Yeah, yeah, good question. Yeah, so, so the the job of prophet, particularly during this era, although I don't think at any era it was, is was not a highly sought after job. There are a few who are zealous to be prophets, but um, and are godly, um, but they're pro- that's probably a minority. And increasingly, what we're going to see, indeed, as we come up on Elijah, we're going to see that in this time period, in particular. Prophets become known as the bad news guys because they're always coming in. Like when you see a prophet, you're like, oh, great, you know, <laughs> because it's like God has finally had enough and the prophets come in to like say who's going to get slain and like licked by dogs and eaten by birds and that kind of thing. Like, so nobody wants to see a prophet. And you get this, you get this all the way th- in the major and minor prophets, really all the way until Israel's demise. So you're talking about centuries of this dynamic going on. Um, Jeremiah is such a great, such a great book in this regard because there's definitely some reluctance on the part of Jeremiah. He's very, very young, and all the and, and sort of the professional, um, wealthy, prophetic class are against him, and they're wanting to prophesy, hey, everything's going to be glorious, everything's great, and he, and God has sent him to come and like be the bearer of bad news, and come in and be like, no, it's all disaster, it's all going to fall apart, and of course, is that a popular message? No, so Jeremiah ends up getting put in the stocks, and thrown into a pit and all sorts of other things. I mean, this is how it went for all the prophets, right? But Jeremiah, there's just something about that narrative that seems to be iconic for the prophetic office um, at were this time. All the prophets
1: rabbis or were they just families or tribes? And how did God choose them? Or did he just, and I mean, God can tell you to go someplace, but what if it's, you know, you. Like
0: Jonah, hey, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the short—the short answer is we don't—we don't really know about the. We know very little about the. The sort of school of the prophets, and some of this you see dancing around the background of the text. Like it seems as though. I mean, this is a this is a really big stretch, and I don't mean to make really a, a. as much of a positive comparison as it might sound like. But in the same way that in the early church you might say, like, I'm going to go be a monk, you know, you, there, there's this sense in which you might say, okay, I'm going to go be a prophet. A male might say, I'm going to go be a prophet. I'm going to study the word of the Lord in this particular school and that kind of, and live this kind of ascetic life, um, ritualistic life. There seems to be something like that going on in the background of many Old Testament texts, but we don't have enough information to know. Definitively, when the word of the Lord comes to you and says, go tell so and so such and such, uh, yeah, you're a prophet, right? Whether you like it or not. Of course, Jonah didn't want it. Jonah's the the greatest example of a reluctant prophet, indeed a prophet that refuses, outright refuses. And then even when he does his task, of course, is pretty grumpy about it. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's a fascinating study in and of itself to draw from the prophets and see all the personalities that God calls. I mean, some of them, some of them lament their lack of formal education. And I mean, I can't remember, I can't remember which of the prophets. I don't know if it, maybe one of you remember. I can't remember if it was Malachi or, no, that doesn't sound right. Uh, I can't remember who it is. Um. But he was a farmer, and that's all he wanted to do. And when people get upset with him, he'd be like, look, I don't want to be here either. (laughs) I'm a farmer, (laughs) I'm not a learned man. God sent me here, and this is what he has to say to you. Like, deal with it, you know. So yeah, it's, so Jehu does not have a pleasant job here, does he? He kind of gets to, like, his, uh, his vocation here is to be the preacher of bad news, the proclaimer of, of the, d- the death of kings, the death of dynasties.
1: You said one time in one of the sermons, God uses almost you were saying, I got the impression was, yeah, you got some bad attitude with some of these, but God still
0: uses them, and you're still responsible. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's, That speaks to the diversity of those who hold this prophetic office or prophetic role. Alright, so today alone we have, uh, we can see the line in the north. Jeroboam, Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri. How do we think it's going to go for Zimri? Not well. Pretty, ha- pretty much have a, a, a good statistic guess when finding a king in 1st and 2nd Kings that they're going to be bad. Um, verse 15. In the twenty-seventh year of Asa king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Tirzah. Now the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, and the troops who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and he has killed the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel, that day in the camp. So Omri went up from Gibbethon and all Israel with him, and they besieged Tirzah. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Because of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Zimri, uh, death by suicide, kind of uh, gets a gets a nice nice. Uh, Seven-day reign in, and <laughs> and Omri and friends are gathered all around him. He sees that the city's lost, he's lost, and so he uh, burns down the house around him. Not, I mean, this is not what you want to be when you grow up. All right, so what then? We've got Omri, but is he going to uh, is he going to reign um, without? challenge you know this is this this is even kind of the sad thing like a kingdom divided cannot stand you see now we're in the north and the north is splintering into these civil wars i mean it's not enough now that you've got a war between north and south israel and judah but even in the midst of israel you've got zimri versus omri wait yeah zimri versus omri and then you're going to have omri versus Tibni, And so you see the, the north is even divided against itself. And that leads us into uh, verse 21 to be introduced to Tibni. Swift, though he, his role is. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. So again, when we're saying Israel, we're referring to the group in the north. They were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Genoth, to make him king and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganoth. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer. For two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of Shamer, the owner of the hill. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did more evil than all who were before him. Yeah, I mean, just when this this phrase, believe it or not, actually repeats. So <laughs> So <laughs> these guys are outdoing one another in wickedness. It's, it's an incredible thing. I mean, not that we'd know anything like that. <laughs> yeah. no. Politicians, one after another, just yeah. doing more wicked than the one before. Okay. Um, Omri is actually kind of a big deal. It's, it's interesting because in the, in the scriptures themselves, he's not that big of a deal. But Omri gets noted in some extra-biblical texts as being like a really big deal, as being second only to Solomon from a worldly perspective, which gives us you know, this nice little homiletic um, view on things, you know, that the Bible's history and the world's history are two different things. And, and I, I, maybe more precisely, God's history and man's history are two different things. So that... What we view as looming very large historically, as we go up into heaven and hear God's version of history, may be quite different. Things that are greatly emphasized from our earthly vantage point, hey, these are the big names God is going to have as asterisks or not there at all, and meanwhile, small names um, uh, that, that we barely reckon and that the world doesn't reckon at all, um, these are the names that loom large in the events that loom large in the history as god writes it so we have an example of that here in the bible that the bible just you know gives really short shrift to omri um when extra biblical sources show that he was in the world's eyes quite a big deal if you look at um i think it's the footnote on well just look at the footnote on verse 22 of chapter 16 first omri founder of one of the more stable dynasties Omri restored order in the northern kingdom during the reign of his successors, Ahab, Ahaziah, Jehoram. The relationship between Israel and Judah changed from one of hostility to one of peace and cooperation. Um, Let me just see here. Yes, and if you drop down to the note on verse 27... According to extra-biblical sources, Omri achieved international fame. Assyrian records referred to Israel as the land of Omri, even after his dynasty had vanished. Yeah, so he's kind of a big deal. However, considerations other than military and political interest guided the writer of 1 Kings. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and then he just goes on to say, by contrast, um, the story of Omri's son Ahab takes up six chapters, while all Omri gets is this little section. But that, of course, has less to do with Ahab and more to do with Elijah. All right, so Omri, uh, you know, really, I think... I think, strictly speaking, in a left-hand kingdom kind of way, Omri does some good things. He unites the north and the south. Uh, He obviously um, acquires international fame. There's a certain strength that takes place under him. But, of course, evaluated from the right-hand kingdom, from the spiritual viewpoint on things, uh, he's terrible. He's worse than any who came before him. So, verse 25 Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. Ahab, quite the infamous king. Um, We're going to see that in his relationship with uh, Elijah, his wife, Jezebel. Um, His repentance, so to speak. We'll take a look at that. Um, But more importantly, as we're introduced to Ahab, we're introduced to Elijah. Verse 29, in the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. (laughs) if you drop down to the study note on verse 30 i think this is somewhat interesting under ahab's reign apostasy the cause of israel's fall a century later reached a new height um or a new height so a century later what is this saying or like um in the middle of the uh 800s, in the middle of the 9th century BC, and about a century later is when the Assyrians will come down and wipe out the north. So that's what that's a reference to. Um, they only have about 100 years left. Without necessarily observing a chronological sequence, the author presents a series of events as evidence of this evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahab's marriage to a Phoenician princess and worship of her national idol known as Melkart, deserves early mention to show how far he went to provoke the Lord to anger. There's an interesting type here. I just submitted to you um, loosely, but there's kind of an interesting type here. In the way of uh, the patterning that you find in Genesis, it's patterning Paul talks about how the, how the woman is deceived and then leads Adam into sin. And there's this patterning where you have, the, where you have a king and um, he's led by his wife into idolatry and greater and greater idolatry. So you kind of see this odd type, this odd pattern. And I'm not saying to make too much of that. I am just, I am just pointing it out as, as an interesting pattern and type in the, uh, in the text itself. And it's certainly not to exonerate the, the male, the king in this instance. So, but especially those words, like you listen to the, remember what God says to the cursed Eve, you, you listen to your wife instead of to me. And, and that, isn't that exactly what's going on here? Like you listen to your Phoenician wife instead of to me. You worshiped her God instead of, yeah. So it's this interesting pattern.
1: But isn't that when Pilate, his wife, came and told him, don't do anything to this man because I had a dream. He didn't listen to her.
0: He should have listened yeah. to his wife. Pilot should have listened to his wife. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. Um, I forgot to mention, we've got a microphone around here somewhere. Thank you, Barry. So, so next time, if you've got a question or a comment, if you raise your hand, we'll, we'll pause. We'll get you the microphone. That way the entire World Wide Web can, plus the, the vocal recognition software from Google, can target you. A drone will come visit you some evening because you were the premises of a Christian church? Yes, sir.
2: Just a comment. Uh, as you're reading uh, all of this and what's going on, it's I was reminded of your series of sermons on Amos. And Amos was a, a man from Judah, from the south, who God sent to the north during these times. As I looked at the first part of Amos, it said during the time of Jeroboam. So it wasn't that God didn't send rescue Oh yeah, and yeah. and prophets in there right. even from the south. Right. So Elijah's going to be coming, but I mean it, this Amos fits right into the uh, the, the
0: mix there. Great the point, m- Barry. Great point. And that's, I mean, honestly, it's just this is this is math that's too far above me. But um, yeah. If, yeah, I don't know and I don't even know how best to do it, let alone teach it or how best to study it, let alone teach it. But the truth of the matter is there's prophets and biblical prophets running around all throughout this period. Mhm. Mhm. So, um you can find these charts, I find them about as interesting as phone books, um, but you can, you can find these charts charts that try to do this visually, right, that line up who's the king of where and what profits are running around where and how they're influencing and maybe that's the best way you can do it, yeah, but it is, um, it is worth noting. Yeah, thank you for that. Okay, so yeah, we were in the study note, I think, um, on the study note on verse 30, and we had, we had talked about how Ahab gets married to the Phoenician princess and starts worshipping Melkart. And then um, the study note continues, capable of violating this basic requirement of the covenant, he could be expected to defy other laws of the Lord. Yet the Lord ended the reigns of other evil rulers, but allowed Ahab to continue... In view of his repentance, now that's a controversial statement, I think a little bit, but by chapter 21 we're going to see a kind of repentance on the part of Ahab. <coughs> and we'll see, we'll see, we'll have to weigh and assess that. Alright, so chapter 17, verse 1, and this is, I think, wait, no, I didn't go all the way through, did I? I'm sorry, I left off where, right around 30? Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Yeah, this is not good. And Ahab made an Asherah. So this is uh, like a statue of a female goddess. I mean, we talked about this when we were studying Exodus. You can go back there and look in the footnotes. If you want to know more about Baal and Asherah, Baal was kind of this thunder god, and Asherah, this goddess of fertility. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, I mean, here's an, interesting, uh, here's an interesting aside and a tangent, but so much for people who say, and, and for I shouldn't say for people who say, but for the argument that all sin is the same. You know, one sin is the same as 24,000 sins. Oh, really? And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. I mean, so you weigh Ahab on the scales, and he's worse than the others. The sins he committed were worse, their volume was worse, etc. And so I mean, just one more, I point, once more, I point this out how like just this bizarre theolo- non-biblical theology has overtaken us, and we got to get rid of it by reading the Bible. All right. Yeah, so Ahab was Ahab really, really angered the Lord. verse 34 in his days hiel of bethel built jericho Ooh, what had happened to jericho yeah the trumpets blew and god knocked it down yeah what god knocks down don't build back up again you know conversely what god joins together don't rend asunder So, this rebuilding of Jericho. Now, this is an interesting comment because I have not been able to find any other biblical date on it, but it's just taken as, as assumed to be the case. Um, if you see something, let me know. But, yeah, so this guy, Hiel, rebuilds Jericho. I mean, what a, what a dumb idea. So, he laid its foundation at the cost of Abraham, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. So from his oldest to his youngest, his sons perish. Now this we are told by the author of 1 Kings, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Joshua the son of Nun. So in other words, this was, again, I was not able to, and I didn't spend a ton of time on it, but I was not able to immediately locate a verse that you know, gave us this information, but here it's just simply taken as fact by the author of First Kings that God um, had laid this curse upon any who would rebuild Jericho, and so uh, this is the fulfillment of that curse. I mean, but just what shameless evil! Like, up oh, there goes one of my sons. There goes another. Let's keep on keeping on. Uh, just yeah, up until all his sons are lost. Jericho's rebuilt. You know, what does Jericho symbolize here? Jericho in many ways symbolizes the paganism that had shut them out of the promised land. And so now they had entered the promised land, they'd so become paganized themselves as to be indistinguishable, and so they rebuild that gate and rebuild that wall and barrier. It's just a terrible, terrible visual kind of thing going on. All right. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe. Well, we don't really know what a Tishbite of Tishbe is. Um, If you drop over to uh, chapter 17, verse 1, that study note. um, Well, let's just read the whole thing. Why not? Elijah, heroic prophet of 1 Kings. To counteract the evils of Ahab's reign, God raised up one of the most arresting figures among the Old Testament prophets. And he is. He's quite arresting, and he's very enigmatic. And I don't think we have a single one of his sermons. We don't have a book written by him. If you just sort of look at it on paper, he's not all that important, and yet he is. He's arguably the most important of all of the prophets. Um, Maybe the easiest way to sort of prove an entry to that point is which of the prophets ascend to heaven in a chariot? <laughs> you know, just this guy. Uh, and there's other indicators as well. So, so God raised up one of the most arresting figures among the Old Testament prophets. In, quote, spirit and power, end quote, Elijah was to foreshadow one besides whom there was none greater among those born of women. okay now I mean in a sense uh, Elijah's connection with um, John the Baptist, remember um, there's this there's this prophecy that That Elijah or one like Elijah is to come before the Messiah comes and so Elijah becomes a a type of John the Baptist of course Elijah in his own right becomes a type of the Messiah as well he's kind of a both and figure the note continues as Moses was the type of the capital P prophet you know, Jesus, uh, That is a type of Christ. Christ is the, capital P, prophet. So Elijah prefigured the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. He suddenly appeared on the scene. He vanished from sight even more mysteriously. And then, of course, what else are you going to say about Elijah? He, um, he shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration next to Moses. I, you can't... You, there is no figure larger in the Old Testament than Moses for crying out loud. and so for Elijah to show up in his company really shows um, that Eli- Elijah's a remarkable prophet. Um, again, arguably just yeah, yeah, arguably on par with Moses. It's just fascinating because the, if, if sort of all you had was first kings, you probably wouldn't guess that. maybe you would. I don't know. You probably wouldn't guess that. But it's taken the whole biblical revelation together regarding this figure. We come to really see his importance. All right, so um, continuing on, we're going to get to this, uh, the Tishbite of Tishbe. So native, he was a native of Tishbe, which is an obscure village in Transjordan, Gilead. Oh, that helps quite a lot. Mentioned only in connection with Elijah. Gilead is a northern Transjordan area. (laughs) So, um, see the map on page 558 if you really want to dig into this more. But um, the long and the short is his origin is pretty obscure. We know generally where he's from, and that's about it. And it's really, this area is really only named in connection with him. So now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbi in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. All right, so there is going to be a famine, and we know from other biblical sources this famine is three and a half years. There's no rain means, of course, there's a shortage of water to drink, but even more so, shortage of uh, water for crops. So this is a big, big deal. You know, and quite a miracle. I think even just in context, quite a miracle. This would, this would stand out as rather impressive in and of itself, let alone all the rest that Elijah does. Verse 2, And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Well, this is really interesting, especially if you contrast this with Baal and uh, Asherah, who are the fertility gods. And so, you know, by by sympathetic magic, by doing these erotic, sexually immoral things, you're supposed to evoke them to their creative, um, you know, the rain's going to fall by Baal and Asherah's going to grow the crops and, and that's sort of the, the fertility rite. Meanwhile, the true God via Elijah comes and says, yeah, there's not going to be any rain or any food. <laughs> so, Puts the whole kibosh on that. And I think that's a good way to read that is in in contrast with what uh, Ahab was doing. So um, this is not just an arbitrary kind of punishment. This is a direct attack uh, of Yahweh against Baal and Asherah and against this false religion. Meanwhile, he provides for the prophet. So he's going to have him drink from the brook. I mean, where's the brook going to get water? Even this is sort of tinged with uh, the miraculous. And then um, if you're not thoroughly convinced of that, then at least be convinced by, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. We've got, I mean, we live in, are they, are they this far down here? I live in San Juan Capistrano, where you know we're all known like nationally or internationally for the swallows. We should be known for the ravens. Or whatever those blackbirds are that, yeah, the big ones that fly around by the thousands. Yeah, by crows. the thousands. You think they're gross? gross. Oh, crows. Oh, OK. Yeah. Maybe they are crows. I don't know. Yeah, do they come and feed you every morning like they do me? Come and drop off some steaks and some muffins? No. <laughs> It'd be nice if they had some use, other than uh, when we had infant children waking them up every morning at sunrise. but oh anyway so yeah this is a miracle that ravens are going to be put to to good use and so the ravens are going to come and feed Elijah miraculously verse 5 so he went and did according to the word of the Lord he went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan you know, the connection with the Jordan River, you can see that geographically. You can see him living off the land in the same way John the Baptist kind of lives off the land, albeit it's, you know, honey and locust. You can see some, some tangents between these two prophets. Verse 6, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning. Do you think they barbecued it? <laughs> I don't think so. It's a, it's a little gruesome, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little gruesome. Where are they getting this? Hey, is this free range? <laughs> <Is> this? <laughs> are there antibiotics in here? Um, <laughs> maybe you'd want that. I don't know. Yeah, this is. I mean, this is a little. Uh, this is a little gritty. The Lord provides for him, but I doubt that it's terribly comfortable. You know, maybe he drops off the meat and then they, and then he cooks it. Maybe that's what he does. Let's hope so. I don't know, who knows what the birds think, but yeah, they. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, God, God works this profound miracle, it's great, it's great, there's this miraculous feeding, and it, of course, any time you have a miraculous feeding in the midst of wilderness, there's this miraculous food and this miraculous drink, I mean, you've got all kinds of things to reflect on, don't you? Um, not least of which, as, as the church fathers on occasion would do, as they would, they would go so far as to see this in, in the, the combination of, of bread and meat, bread and flesh, they would see a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper coming, that the Lord would provide um, bread that is flesh and, and, and um, give life to the faithful. So, you know, your mileage may vary on that one, but that's, um, that is a type that is, that is sometimes seen here. Okay, so you have this miraculous feeding. Oh, I think, I think. I mean, this is why pastors wear black, you know. <laughs> the crows that come and bring you the Lord. <laughs> oh my, oh my, I need a mid-morning nap, yeah. Okay, um, verse 7, let's just finish this section out. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Oh, this is, you know, this is interesting. This is interesting when you have your eye to the prophetic office and what God does there, because it is fascinating in its own right. Because here you have, in a, in a prophet like Elijah, in the prophetic office proper, you have, like, the remnant of the remnant, the most faithful of the most faithful, And watch carefully how God treats them because it's with difficulty it's with difficulty there's a challenge there not not so much a punishment but a challenge a kind of disciplining that goes on a kind of provocation so um, here he is we're gonna see more of this we're gonna see this loom large in Elijah to where where Elijah even has like reason to cry out to God that he just wishes he was dead so the brook that is um, you know, giving him water dries up. There's no rain in the land, and he begins to suffer as well. Okay, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Now this is, um, I mean, it's hard to say like what's Gentile and not land, you know, but this is really... Zarephath is really kind of Gentile land. If you look at the note on um, verse 9, Zarephath, small coastal town of Phoenicia between Tyre and Sidon. Jesus' only excursion beyond the borders of ancient Israel was to the region of Tyre and Sidon, where he too met a Syro-Phoenician woman of great faith. So, in other words, this is... Um, This is something Jesus brings up in a sermon along with God's kindness to the Gentile Naaman, God's kindness to this widow who is a Gentile of Zarephath, and that God desires ultimately all men to be saved, including the Gentiles, and so the righteousness of the law accounts for nothing. It's the righteousness that Christ has come to bring, and when Jesus' Jesus' people hear his sermon and make these kinds of connections, they get furious with him and try to throw him off a cliff. So, so this is is an event that factors very large even into the New Testament and the redemption of the Gentiles. This stings too. This stings too in the ears of the first century people because as, as Israelite widows are perishing because of the famine, this Gentile widow is spared. So you can see how the Lord it, you know, really provokes them with this text. Alright, so the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. You know, it's interesting because does she, she doesn't really seem aware of that command. It doesn't mean that God hasn't commanded her, that God isn't putting there and controlling her and that this whole thing is going to go exactly as as he desires. Um, But it is interesting to note that he says, I've commanded a widow and yet she seems kind of unaware of this command. I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, "Bring me a little water in a, va- in a vessel, that I may drink." Yeah, this is. I mean that. It, it, this it, this is all amplified because, um, I mean, under normal circumstances, this would be hospitality, and this is would be what you do, and you know, this was but it's amplified because it's a drought. So this is really kind of a challenging and almost, you know, kind of on its face, presumptive type, type of request. Very interesting. Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord, your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a, excuse me, in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. Yeah, terrible picture. If you look at the study note on verse 12, As the Lord your God lives, vowed to affirm the truth of her testimony. The widow recognized Elijah as an Israelite. And her expression may indicate frail faith in the true God. Though Zarephath lay outside Israel, Israelite beliefs had influenced its people. Sidonians typically worshipped Eshman and participated in the regional fertility cults. Okay, So here you can see that the drought is not restricted only to Israel either. It goes outside of Israel's borders. Verse 13, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for, for yourself and your son. I mean, this is a profound test of faith, really, and a, and a profound test of, hey, are you gonna, you know, are, you, are you going to trust me or not? For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So you're going to have a miraculous multiplication of oil and flour uh, sufficient for these, these three, the widow, her son, and Elijah, until the end of the famine. And God has put his name upon it. You know, he stamped his reputation there. Verse 15, And she went and did as Elijah said. I mean, this is incredible faith. It's really incredible faith that she shows. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty. According to the word of the Lord, that she spoke by Elijah, that he spoke by Elijah. Okay, so here is, here is a rather profound miracle, and uh, at least in terms of the narrative, miracle number two. The first miracle that is worked through Elijah is, is the famine, and the second is this miraculous feeding of the widow and her son. Yes, yes, please. Uh, As you're
2: reading this, it it seems like this is a type uh, as to how we are to care for pastors and missionaries. Mm. Uh, Is
0: there a linkage there? Uh, I hadn't hadn't thought of that, but that's very interesting. Certainly a case could be made. I mean, I know how I would feel, um, as I put myself in the shoes of a parishioner, and there's a there's a drought or shortage, and um, you know there's a man of God that you can help provide for. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so there there might be a kind of homiletical take on this or point on this, and in showing kindness to a man of God, God shows kindness back. That's sort of the idea of receiving a prophet's reward, as Jesus brings up um, in his gospel. So. Yeah, I think I think it's an interesting, interesting thought to have here. Certainly true. So
2: you know, in our church, we we have missionaries every once in a while that come through, and mm-hmm. they seem to raise their own funds. Uh, or yeah. I never really have understood that totally, but they they'll come and they'll talk about what they're doing, and then there seems to be a quiet fundraising effort. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh.
0: Yeah, the, I, think, I think the conundrum for us is that there are so many missionaries and so many people wanting to do good things, you don't, you, in one sense, you don't want to spread yourself so thin you're not able to make a large impact and get somebody to the mission field. Occasionally, these missionaries in our system, if, they, if they're not able to get, I don't know if they have to fully fund themselves, I doubt it, it's probably some percentage they have to fund themselves, and if they don't get the full amount, they don't go, kind of thing and so so that puts us in a conundrum as a congregation we want to we want to fund a few well rather than everyone not enough and so we try to pick and choose those missionaries to fund as they as they go out and this just one of the re, you know the realities i this is tangential and you know you may you may vehemently disagree with me and that's that's fine as, uh, but i i tend to think we're kind of seeing some of the last gasps of the church's ability to really put out international missionaries. Um, already it's kind of like, hey, partially or entirely fund yourself. Part of that is just an implicit recognition on the part of all that we are increasingly a missionary field. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think, yeah, I think if I, rec- if I recall correctly, it was, it was either the late 1970s or the early 1980s, where the first missionary from Africa landed on our soil to convert (laughs) us. Yeah, (laughs) that's, you know, that's 40 years later. So, um, yeah, so increasingly to see ourselves as the missionary field and increasingly to take on the burden um, to care for and provide for people here who are going to be put under persecution and oppression and, and have to make decisions and stands that put them outside of the ability to participate in our nation's economy and that kind of thing and you know, s- be able to support them. I, I see more and more of our dollars and our, our f- what finances we have going to serve people in our immediate uh, context than in decades of old where we were able to you know, send so much and do so much internationally. Again, you, you're, feel free to vehemently disagree with me. It's a little bit of just trying to predict what's to come. But if you, if you watch the trends, there's less and less funding for international more and more realization that hey, we've, we've got our own mission field zooming up and down the freeway you know, and, and all around us. Yeah. Okay, did I see another hand or another, uh, another thought? All right. Well, that's, um, that's good enough. We've, we've got maybe less than a minute to go anyway. So let's simply pick up next week with chapter 17, verse 17, and Elijah raising the widow's son from the dead. And so we're going to see Elijah increasingly become a type of Christ. The Lord be with you.